we have to have a purpose, a focus, a vision and a strategy so that everybody is aligned and that's what good teams are. The way I phrase it to all of our leaders is be the leader that you always wanted. And we've worked with good leaders, all of us, and we've worked with bad leaders. And you take something from each of them. But being a leader is a privilege and responsibility. And for me, it is not just about winning. This is Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast. Here to help go-to-market leaders do one thing, stop guessing. If you're ready to unlock reality and reach your full potential, then this show is for you. I'm Danny Wasserman coming to you from the Gong Studios. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Welcome back to the Gong Studios. Danny Wasserman here, joined today by a really impressive guest, CEO of LexisNexis specifically, their risk solutions and data services wing, which is part of the larger Relics group. We've got Dean Curtis in the house, calling in from across the pond over in the UK. And when you examine the illustrious track record that Dean has posted, I think the most important thing to note is that winning at all cost is not what Dean wants to follow or espouse for the people that work for him, work alongside him, or folks that are listening to this podcast. No, it is not about winning at all costs. Instead, he wants to do it sustainably. What does that mean, sustainable winning? Well, that when you look at you know the results from a team's performance, yeah, they're important to Dean and his leadership team, but they're less important than the performance and the inputs from what he's getting on his squad. And that's really fascinating as you consider all the pressures that Dean and his leaders are on to produce the results, it takes tremendous courage. I think this really revolutionary, refreshingly so, revolutionary approach to celebrate the performance-focused journey rather than the results. You're going to hear along the way how Dean is thinking about doing this in a way that balances both his instinct as well as the data that informs his instinct, that producing ultimately a culture that yields a sterling track record of W's. Well, I've talked too much, and you certainly don't pay to come listen to me. You want to hear from Dean. So I'll put a cork in it and leave you with my final closing line. DJ, spin that. Ladies and gents of Reveal, back again for yet another episode being broadcast from the other side, the east side of the Atlantic Ocean. Yep, last week in Dublin, Ireland, and couldn't avoid the opportunity, nor was I going to squander the opportunity to interview the next guest who hails from this side of the Atlantic as well, coming to you from Her Majesty's the United Kingdom, not in Dublin. But let me tell you about this guest, because while he allegedly has been confused for David Beckham or Rod Reynolds, I don't see it, but allegedly that's the case. He sure has a pitch that reminds me of Michael Caine, but those are just the beginning, we'll say, qualifications why he's on this week's episode. No. We're talking to someone who has spent decades within the sales profession, someone who's worked for the likes of Walters Kluwer, for Thomson Reuters, notably and most recently serving as the CEO of LexisNexis Resolutions and Data Services, part of the larger Relics group, if you're familiar. And fascinatingly, at one point, a coach affiliated with Tottenham, well, as a Chelsea man myself, for all you football supporters, I'm willing to put our football rivalries behind us. Because we have in the house, in the Gong Studios, Dean Curtis. Dean, welcome to Reveal. Hey, Danny. Great to be with you. 
I mean, we'll come back to whether or not I see the resemblance to Deadpool Ryan Reynolds, but I think that the listeners really want to hear, to begin with, something that is broadly featured on your LinkedIn, Dean. And it's a quote that really struck me. It reads as this, exercise is my release, family is my reason, and working people are my purpose and motivation. And I read that, I just appreciate so much the level of honesty and candor that if we see CEO of LexisNexis, that's just so out of reach for so many of us. We'd be paralyzed with intimidation, fear. How do I even approach someone who's achieved such greatness? And there you are, plain and simple, declaring, this is who I am at my core. Talk to us about that and maybe along the way in your career, how you arrived at such a clear mantra that you seem to live by. Yeah, so, so I've actually spent a great deal of time um, uh, looking at my purpose and my underlying values. So it's something yeah. that I've been working on continuous, continuously over the last 17 years. It's something that I really hold true and dear. And I think that if you're looking at a culture of inclusion and for people to be their very best, you have to be yourself. And what I've found in times of crises is that um, people see who you really are anyway. And so that ability to really kind of deeply know your purpose and what you stand for is very, very clear and, and, and needed in decision-making, that authenticity. And, and so behind that, I have some underlying values which I live by. And, and, you know, my purpose in life is to make myself and those around me as, as, as best as they can possibly be to their potential. And I guess the, the release piece is I'm quite an intense person. I, I find relaxing difficult apart from when I'm on holiday, um, and away from all of the jobs and people around and in my life. So, you know, exercise is kind of my church and the, the, the way that I get that and part of my kind of recipe, if you like. And, uh, and obviously the family are the most important thing to me and, and, and the reason why I kind of do what I do. So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's my kind of own performance recipe. But I think I'd encourage anyone to go on that journey. I think the, the most important thing, whether you're a leader or not, and I would say we're all the same, the way we're going to get the best out of ourselves is know who we are, what we stand for, be that, and put ourselves in an environment where that is possible. Um, and so I, I, I try and encourage everyone who works with me to do exactly the same. Well, you've never minced words about your affinity for sport and how being an athlete, even at the professional level, how that has served you well in the career you've led in business and in sales. And we hear all of the analogies. We see leaders draw parallels all the time between sport and sales and business. And there's a part of us, I think, now where we kind of just bristle at how cliche that's become or how predictable that's become. And I'd like to hear from you because in so many ways, you've attributed your success to that natural parallel. So help MythBus for us why, in spite of the regularity and the frequency in which we see people draw those connections, why it really makes a lot of sense. So I, I, I can say I took more from my own performance career, certainly leadership from my time in sport than I ever have through business, a business book or anything else because, um, and it is a cliche, and the challenge I have is how I mix that to other areas of performance around the world so that everybody can relate. So we've looked at chefs and astronauts and musicians, all of which are high performance. So... And I think that there's some fundamental principles that 
the first in terms of individual performance. If, if you know, and I've asked different people in and out of sport people, Simon Sinek, Sir Alex Ferguson, the Manchester United manager, you know, different people. What makes the best the best? And it's yeah. the ability to do the mundane things continuously better each and every single day. And that's particularly true in sales, right? If you, if you point to people like Lionel Messi, Roger Federer, Tiger Woods, you know, in his heyday, they were, you know, it's doing the things that everybody can do, but very few are willing. Consistently mm. better with a very high board and threshold is what I would say. And 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 we 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 actually so I have sports psychologists in in our organisation. I have a head of performance, and the job is how how can we all get better today than we were yesterday on the path to our potential? And that's not an you know people can be intimidated a bit by the phrase high performance but high performance is not elite performance it's not being the best in the world high performance is just being the best version of you so that's one area where sport really relates to the second in teamship so my job you know i have six ceos report to me um, and my job is to turn a team of leaders into a leadership team and in business you know in sport whether it's basketball, American football, in a certain set of time, 90 minutes, whatever, or an hour, you either, you're conditioned to win or lose together, whether you like the people you're playing with or not. In business, people sit around leadership tables and, oh, they're not very good, they'll be gone in a year. And you know what? You just don't have that time. And it's, everybody has strengths and weaknesses that you bring to the table. And, and to create a mutually accountable team, for me, away from that performance recipe is the secret to success. But the biggest thing and the most important thing, which directly relates to sales, Danny, is just in sport, you're conditioned not to tell people to win because it's unhelpful, right? It's like me telling you not to worry or my kids to pass an exam. Yet in business, it seems okay to say, hit your target. You know, and, and everything is outcome focused and an obsession with outcome can really be unhelpful, right? And, and so we have a saying, performance is doing the things you need to do to get the results you want. And it's all of those little things that add up to the result. And, um, and I forget the chap's name, but he, yeah, it's passed, it slipped my mind. But the San Francisco 49ers coach um, that was hugely successful years ago, um, he, he wrote a book, The Score Takes Care of Itself, you know, from, from the, Bill Walsh, sorry, the performance focus. And, and that's what we try and have in our business. I'm ultimately judged on results, the same I'm sure as you are and everybody listening to this podcast. But a, a, a deep obsession with the number is unhelpful. And in fact, I actually find it limiting because when people think about hitting their target, they often kind of do themselves a disservice because they're not thinking about the total opportunity in their territory or their responsibility. So you almost put a glass ceiling and manage to the number. So I, I hugely believe and throughout my organizations that a performance focus really does make us better, particularly in sales. Gets even harder so to, to go on, but it's just a passion of mine. Is is how do you measure it? And that you know, in sales, you're so visible and measurable. When I was a salesperson carrying a bag, it was unhelpful. 
if someone said to me, you've got to do 100 calls a day, you know, that, that's just a nonsense because I could do five good ones with decent research that are differentiated and get better results than someone picking up the phone 100 times. And, and I work in organizations where people treat the symptoms and phone their friends and organize their weekends. So this task activity process result focus can be really unhelpful for people to achieve their potential. So behavior is really, really important. I want to come back to this pivot away from results and towards behavior and performance. Before we get to that topic, though, you had said you were looking for these people, the Messies, the Tiger Woods of the world, who have the endurance, who have the capacity to repeat the mundane, the less sexy things that no one else really wants to do to set themselves apart. How do you screen for that, right? Like we, we certainly know that athletes have a competitive edge and a spirit to, if they've been successful, arguably repeat the fundamentals, the 10,000-hour rule from Gladwell. Sure. What are the questions that you're looking for as you're bringing talent into your team that give you the confidence, I've got that person with that degree of endurance? Yeah, so it's a brilliant question because across our organization, we because of that performance focus, we believe habit and behavior is really important. And when we interview people, we, we, we screen for certain behaviors. We interview for certain yeah. behaviors. And the biggest one for me is passion and belief. You know, in any business, life is short. You know, we've all had different stories and, and hardships in our life and lost people or people have been ill. Life, life is a gift and it's short. Don't do something you don't want to do. And if you don't believe in the company and the products you represent, it shows. You know, there is nothing more compelling than someone sits in front of you so pumped about their organization, their eyes are shining, and they truly believe. It doesn't matter what comes out of their mouth, really, being really honest. Yeah. You know, you just know that they're totally in with what they're standing for. And that's, that's the most unbelievable, powerful thing in the world. And so, you know, making sure that people really see themselves and want to come and work in our organization is key for me. Not, well, I might go and interview because the salary might be better. And if they offer me the job, then I'll make a decision. So we screen through that through the process, certainly for the bigger roles where I interview at the end. You know, within the first 90 seconds, I can tell whether someone really wants to be in this organization or not. And that will is so important. We, we have a big mantra of will over skill. People should make mistakes. And in sales, we don't make enough. But you've got to want to do it and you've got to want to try. So passion and belief is the first. Another really important one is curiosity. And it's how do you continually get, you know, that, um, how do you continually question your why and, and, and what you're doing? And in sales, we can get into habits, can't we, where you go to this client meeting and everything matters. It's, the, it's that new business lead or it's the renewal and I can't screw it up. And so because we think like that, what we do is revert to behavior and play in the safe zone and we'll ask a few questions at the beginning because we're consultative and then there'll be an awkward silence and we'll get the PowerPoint out and we were so we were formed in this year and we're in this many countries in the world and then we'll have a bit more of a discussion. There'll be an awkward silence and I'll do a demo. And then the customer will turn around and say, oh, it's really going to be polite and say, you know, what's the pricing? And then we'll go back and spend three hours writing a proposal that we spend the next three months following up, right? All of that is kind of process-driven and acting within your comfort zone. And 
And so having the curiosity to say, I know I do things really, really well. What are they? How do I do more of them? And where can I change my habits and behavior? And it's just getting evidence of where people have done that in the past. Along, to be honest with you, with that resilience and and part of resilience is being comfortable in yourself and knowing what you stand for, where we started today, right, on, on authenticity. You know, do people really know themselves or do they want to try and fit in? And everybody in the organization I send an email to, and, and, and in the email it, it says, you know, they're all slightly different, but the, the one thing that always gets in there is coming, you've been hired for you, don't change, make a difference, make a few mistakes, a couple of big ones, enjoy yourself and we'll share some success along the way. And I think if everyone keeps that recipe, we'll be in a good place. But they're the basic things that I certainly look for. There are a few others around teamship and communication that the sales leaders would screen for. But I think behaviours are far, far more important than track record and, and education. You're standing a conventional model if we look at maybe educational pedigree or historical track record as a determinant of future success and going with things that are hard to measure, things that even you said in 90 seconds of the interview, you'll feel their passion or sense their authentic curiosity, and that's a swing vote for you. I'm bringing that up because when we index more for those determinants of performance and behavior, well, at the end of the day, we still have a business to run. And whether that's a publicly traded company that's beholden to shareholders in Wall Street, whether that's a private company that has investors or a board, at a certain point when the rubber meets the road, we do have some objective determinations we are achieving or underachieving on performance goals. So can we fully let people off the hook? Can we absolve them from their expectations? That could be quota. Let's go back to even what you said. That could be the number of calls an SDR needs to make. Can we fully absolve them from those obligations that they have? Because they're demonstrating the right behavior. And I'm playing devil's advocate. I don't mean to be in any way subversive. I'm just trying yeah. to think about how, if I'm a leader listening to this podcast, how do I reconcile something that ideologically sounds great? I want to be that leader that doesn't have to crack the whip. But I also know <laughs> the other side of the coin is if I don't, as a team leader or a second line leader of an entire business unit or a CEO, if I don't deliver on the results, I'm out of a job. So I'm kind of in between a rock and a hard place. How would you advise a leader to reconcile that pickle? Yeah. So um, first of all, you've got to have the courage and confidence and be in an environment that allows you to do that. Unfortunate am fortunate okay. that, that, that we take a long-term view in all of our investment that allows us to lay down the culture. But mm-hmm. that's not to say, you know, that if I'm not delivering results, there's a problem. But when that happens and we've worked in organizations like that, you know, you feel like someone's turning the screw on you and, and that, that's not how you get the best out of people. So you have to assume that you have, with good intent, that you have the right people in the organization trying to do the right thing. Granted, activity levels need to be there. And an old sales manager of mine says, if you can't demonstrate sales, demonstrate activity. But the big marker really is the quality of the activity. And so... You know, we do a lot of things around looking at have people really uncovered pain. Do we understand value, right? And and how has the conversation gone with the customer? You know, what uh, what sort of questions are we asking? How much are our salespeople talking? What are the things that we're bringing out? And that's where that's where Gong is just 
brilliant for us, you know, my football coaching world. How I've managed sales teams in the past is I've coached them all week and not turned up to the game because I don't go to every sales meeting. They say they lost 11-0, but they'll be better next week. And I say, all right, then, and I'll carry on coaching again. With the technologies that are available now, you can get more into those performance elements over just hiding behind activity. You know, what happens? We all know what happens if a salesperson's struggling. The first thing they do is fill their pipeline full of junk. You know, you don't win 70% of a deal, yet there's so many sales managers out there that live and die by a pipeline. Now, of course, forecasting is important, and I'm not saying that. But, you know, just understanding, knowing someone that knows their territory, knows where their most opportunity is, knows the competition in the competitive environment, where they offer differentiated value to a customer. You know, all of those things are things that are going to drive results, not every week me saying, well, you know, you've not got enough in the mature stage of your pipeline. What are you going to do? You know, we've all worked. How, how, if we feel about how that felt to us when we were carrying a bag, how useful was that, honestly? So, and that's why I think when people are so results focused and they get behind, it gets even worse. And where a performance environment was really, really useful to us actually was in COVID when the playing conditions change, because you can only perform to your conditions. And if we were still focused on double-digit growth, in some organizations, like I run one of the largest aviation analytics business in the world, data business, and, and you know there weren't many planes in the sky. It was tough conditions for that organization. The targets we set in January, in March, were totally ridiculous and not achievable. But because we'd already laid down this performance focus, we won more share in a declining market than we did when we were growing double digits before it. It is subjective. Some of this is subjective, which is why I think as sales leaders, we often want to hide behind activity tasks and numbers. But that isn't a performance environment. But performance is an equal obsession between performance and results because we are judged on them. But a total focus on activity, outcomes, and results is really, really unhelpful for people to get the best out of. Well, I think about that paradigm of leadership, and I instantly go to the Alec Baldwin, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, always be closing. It's this hard line, no excuses, <laughs> shape up or ship out. And there's yeah. an example of a leader, and I don't know if it's a perfect corollary, but stick with me here, where Frank Slootman is someone in the SaaS world who's widely regarded and celebrated for three separate IPOs, most recently the sales, or not the Salesforce, excuse me, the Snowflake IPO. And he is unapologetically brash, brusque. And he talks about in his leadership style, leadership is not a popularity contest and being one who doesn't want to mince words and who looks at life. When you described yourself in the start of the episode, Dean is intense. I think that you are a absolute spring breeze compared to the degree of intensity which he looks at life in and outside the office where he describes life as the eternal pursuit of suffering. <laughs> it's uh, it, it's pretty draconian. And he's he's achieved huge results. But I wonder philosophically at what expense. So we have yeah. examples where your belief that we should celebrate way more of the performance, less of the outcome. There are counterpoints where we've seen people and Larry Ellison, notoriously draconian, and he achieved great results. Yeah. But in the debate of are we, are we ruling out of love or are we ruling out of fear, 
doesn't seem like, at least in your experience, that the singular path to get to those wildly successful outcomes on Wall Street or elsewhere, that it has to be with such an ironclad fist. What would you say to that? I think it's changing as well, right? As as businesses evolve and, and business strategy becomes more mature compared to how it used to be, hmm. you could start a revolution with that kind of, you know, iron fist dictatorship, autocracy. Yeah. Um, but but people need more than that now. They need the purpose, and and we've got much flatter management and leadership structures. And the reason we've got that is because of the freedom of information. I began in banking my career at Rothschilds in 1995, and it was a pyramid, right? The more information you had, the more power that was. And now, of course, in organizations, information is more widespread. So you get flatter structures, which creates better opportunity for empowerment and scale. And by that, I don't mean people can do what they want. You know, we we have to have a purpose, a focus, a vision, and a strategy so that everybody is aligned, and that's what good teams are. But, you know, I just – the way I phrase it to all of our leaders is be the leader that you always wanted, right? Mm. And we've worked with good leaders, all of us, and we've worked with bad leaders. And you take something from each of them. But – being a leader is a privilege and responsibility. And for me, it is not just about winning and the result. It truly isn't. Because I think when you're there, it's not sustainable. And it certainly isn't fun. How I win is really important to me. And and I want people around me where that's important too. And yeah. truly. Because that's that's where sustainable success comes because people can enjoy themselves and they're not turning up thinking, you know, you want to win where it feels good. And, and my, my thing is, if you look back and you look at how many people worked in different organizations where the culture was so autocratic, did they really enjoy it? They might have a big bank balance and they can point to we grew it from this to this. But did they turn up every day and really reach their potential in the way that they could? We all know the answer to that. Day-driven sales teams close more deals. Plain and simple. The proof isn't just in Dean's experience, but that argument is backed by numbers. McKinsey's study found that data-driven sales teams are 5% more productive and close 10% more deals than their non-data-driven alternatives. It's because using data can personalize outreach, while achieving that authentic and data-driven tandem tactic. That's what Dean is talking about. One other study of note, Harvard Business Reviewer HBR found that companies using data to drive their sales decisions are 15% more likely to achieve their sales goals. Well, I can't think of a better cheat sheet. Let's get back to Dean to hear more about his successful winning formula. So the idea of sustainable winning and winning in a fashion that brings everyone along, but not at their expense. I love that mantra. I want to reference this great Harrison Ford line, and I'll I'll tie it back to the sort of sustainable winning concept. Harrison, he says famously, he's like, money is really important until you have it. And it's sort of like the depressurizing of there's this fixation on money up until a point where it's sustained or up until a point where you're fully financially secure. And I want to tie that back to winning. And would you say that winning and the pursuit of accumulating W's or notches on your belt is really important until a 
a tipping point. At which point then you realize, man, you know, there were a lot of, you know, pounds of flesh that I claimed along the way and how I got here. And now it doesn't feel as, I don't know, pure, wholesome. Wondering, earlier in your career, could you have arrived at the same conclusion that you're at now, after all your success, Dean, where sustainable winning is the only thing that satisfies you? But younger Dean would have said, get out of my way. I break for no one. and I'm going to kick ass and take names. Yeah, I honestly don't. I, I do think you change. Um and, and, and I do think the purpose and the vision of, of what you're trying to achieve is important. And I'll give you a sporting example, but I can relate it to businesses that say, I want to be this big in revenue. Now, the milestones yeah. are important, and we have those in our organization, but it isn't a purpose, right? And yeah. the England Rugby World Cup team, um, they had a vision for eight years to win the World Cup in Australia in 2003. And you speak to many of those players who played in that match, and I have, they felt elated at the final whistle when they actually won it for about 60 to 90 seconds, and then everything just dropped. The best leadership book I've ever read is also on rugby, and I didn't play rugby much when I was younger, but it's a book called Legacy by James Kerr, and it's why the New Zealand All Blacks have been the best team in the world, and it's because They've got a purpose, a set of consistent values that come from the team and not leadership that that pass on. And there's some famous ones in that. You know, no dickheads, sweep the shed. So even today after a game, um, one of the players cleans cleans the locker rooms out um, for the team. And 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 I do think that, that that sustainable purpose is more motivating for people than just a milestone of success, which can be a number in the long term. And there's a there's a there's a good there's a good book on it. It's quite long and it's not my it's not written in the favourite way, but the principle of it is called Second Mountain, where everyone climbs the first mountain and you think, I want to be a CEO, I want to be a pop star, I want to earn the billionaire, I want to be whatever and, and on that journey up the first mountain something happens you, you either get ill someone you lose someone you love something happens in your life or in fact you get there like the England rugby team and when you get there you realize that actually it's not always cracked out to me and you start your journey on the second mountain which is a bit about servitude right and and you know for me, that, that helping people around me get better, the old football coach in me, is really, really important for me. And I have been blessed to work with some of the most exceptional people in my career that have really made me better than I really am. And mm-hmm. if I was to retire and sit somewhere with a cup of coffee and read the newspaper every morning without a purpose, A, I would be miserable, but B, I would be doing all of those people a disservice because I have an obligation to spread that a little bit, right, and make the the great talent that I work with, and I have got some exceptional talent across the organisation, to help them get better and create an environment where they can achieve their potential. And for me, that's more fulfilling than saying, we got to this number or I got this amount of commission. When I was in my early 20s, that wouldn't have been the case, by the way, Danny. Yeah. Well, even just hearing you use the words, I have an obligation to servitude, is not often what we hear CEO say on the podcast. So just to possess that humility is incredibly unique and refreshing, Dean. Yeah, I think it's important for people to achieve their potential day, right? Because the view of leaders is you have to be this ironclad, you know, um, 
I, I've had struggle in my life. You know, I don't have a degree. You know, my background wasn't great, but it's better than most of the world just because of the fact that I grew up in the UK. So it puts me in the top 1% to begin with, right? But, you know, yeah. given my peers when I started my career, you know, it, it wasn't, it, it was quite, it was quite bad, really. And I remember my mum giving me the last kind of coin in a purse and all this type of stuff. And that's not hard done because I'm a white Anglo-Saxon, middle-aged, able male that was brought up in the United Kingdom. The wind was definitely on my back. That's not what I'm saying, right? But yeah. I do believe it would be really disrespectful of me to turn around and, and make everybody think that I'm this polished piece of excellence that's never suffered anxiety, never lost anyone they love in their life, never made any mistakes because that's just wrong. And, and I want everybody to feel, think that and believe that they can sit in this chair if they want to because I think they can. Dean, talking about the accessibility of the chair you sit in and making sure everyone feels they have a fair shake at it. You had talked about where yeah. your organization, when you started your career, was that it was a pyramid. And now, because of the role of data and information and its ubiquity, we have sort of almost an equalizing effect that levels the playing field and people seizing and capitalizing on the power they can wield when they're in the possession of that information. Walk us through your strategy, sort of as you described it as sort of this modern approach where there is a balance of still applying instinct to decisions, maybe it's hiring alongside data. How do you balance technology and data's role in influencing a more flat, modern approach to your strategy? Yeah, this is where I've got to get really brave and speak and open, Danny, because we're a data business and um, and we've, we run data literacy programs and data is important. But I have... I do trust my gut quite a lot, but only after I've had all of the data that is available to yeah. me. And I think it's important to be able to get that insight as quickly as possible because if you if you wait until you've got all of the data that you need, you make the decision too late. And so there is, even in sales and pipelines and forecasting and trends in market, the quicker you can get access to the information that you need, um, the, the better. Um, and then over a period of time, you can see patterns and trust yourself, right? Um, and, and, and I think that, I don't know whether you can relate, but certainly in my time playing sport and doing other things in business, maybe even standing on a podium, you do and say things and you think, oh my God, that was good, but you just, you just do it. And, and that's not luck. It's because you've trained your brain for patterns and that, and decision-making is quite likely that. We've got bias in our decision-making, of course. And, and the key is how can we prove that bias wrong with data often? And, and, I, and I think that's where a lot of businesses and people and leaders and individuals go wrong is they try and get the data that validates what they want to hear rather than you, I think you've got to be courageous enough to use the data to disprove what you think. And if you can't do that, the chances are you're kind of right. Um, and, and you talk about this flat structure, you know, um, inclusion in sales is a huge thing, right? It's a really big thing because to go use your example a while ago about Glengarry Glen Ross, that type of culture conditions you to create a load of lemons that are the same. 
So what does that mean? It means that it's very, very different, difficult for different people that look different, act different and have the same values. You want the watch, the car, the whatever to have a life in sales. And I think that that's so antiquated in 1990s. And so yeah. using data is important. So we, we spend a lot of time looking at diversity data in our sales organizations. So we had a thing last year, for example, where um, we, had a, we have a percentage. It's about 30%, which is the industry average, I think, in females in sales, which isn't enough. And what we found was we were hiring less females, but more females were leaving the organization. So we have a problem. Wow. So you start to look at why is that happening? So you use the data to diagnose the issue, but then you've really got to start to dig in and say, well, what's happening? And, you know, and, and, and we, we were able to do different things. And I think, I, I don't know our latest figure, but when I last looked at it, it was something like 48% of our hires this year in sales had been female. And there's things we've done around that. We, we didn't have enough, and still don't have enough females in sales leadership. We're 50-50 at leadership level and the level below in terms of gender, as an example. But if, if you know, do are there females on the interview panel? So from a basic diagnosis of looking at the numbers, we've then got to say, well, what do the numbers mean? Because that's what data literacy is about. And how do we use that to drive... The, the outcomes that we're after. So I probably rely on my gut quite a lot, but I ensure that the data is there. It's a bit like selling, right? You don't, you, you, pipelines, you don't win 70% of a deal. You either win it all or you win none. And, and then you've got to diagnose why did we not win that deal? Mm-hmm. And there's a million and one different things that could happen in there. And being able to, to quickly get to a point where you know where to dig is important, right? Because then we, you know, if we can, if we can kind of identify them, we could diagnose and prescribe, and that's how we get better. I don't know if I've answered your question there, but you know, and, but we look at a number of different metrics and analytics in the sales world. So we have a a sales methodology which is behaviour based. It's called three C selling. Within that, there is a, a, a structure and a methodology, but we, we look at 12 questions as part of our, our meeting recording gong analytics that tells us where in the process different salespeople are performing well or, and not. And then we're able to focus our sales performance teams in those areas and each person's needs are different. And, and again, I still believe in using people to help others that are doing it well you know it's don't catch people out catch them in i like that thinking about your approach where it the feels that the idea that the data would serve as the stimulant or the catalyst for this hypothesis a hypothesis would originate out of the data and overlaying that data-driven hypothesis you would apply the human context or as you talked about instinct and gut. Is that a fair synopsis? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and it's quite hard to do. So we've got businesses. We used to be a publisher. So my part of the organization, um, which historically was called Read Business Information, we owned over 300 magazines a decade ago. Wow. You could run that business on a spreadsheet just looking at numbers because everything was the same. 
And as our system sales processes, customers have got more complex, the ability to do that by numbers has become less and less. Because if I'm trying to manage someone by the same metrics that are selling a SaaS solution that was selling 100 magazines a day, I'm going to come unstuck pretty quickly because the sales processes are different. The lengths of the process, the resource you need, the decision makers, all of those things. And so it has to be a mix of the two for me. Is there ever a situation where you over-rotate into the data and you almost take the human dimension out? Have you seen that happen where the technology becomes so advanced? We're in an era of generative AI and you think, well, I just want the easy button. I'm just going to push this and out the other side comes the plan or the recommendation or the full solution. Uh, Are we anywhere close to that being of concern? Yeah, I mean, of course we are. And and I think we're already there. And I think even before the age of things like AI, we saw it. I mean, what happens, you know, if if we go back through our careers, and I think we could all probably find an example where the processes are so tight and rigid for a period of time, what happens? People stop thinking, don't they? And you don't have to use your brain. You do what you've always done. And and I use a, I use an example. If I created the average of all of your friends, Danny, you probably wouldn't like them, right? Because it's the yeah. idiosyncrasies and the differences for good and bad in your friendship group that make them your friends. And and that's why we're human, and that's why you've got to let people be themselves. I, I'm a strong believer that AI is going to change our world. And it already has to a degree, but it's going to change it further. And I think, and there's some brilliance in that. We have at Relex some responsible AI principles that we stand by because there is both a huge opportunity for our business and mankind and a huge risk too. But the human race wouldn't have evolved via AI because we're not rational beings, are we? You know, even buying and selling is an emotional thing. And again, the example I always use is you could be in the Amazon jungle or the outback in Australia and the grass moves. And 999,999 times out of a million, it will be the wind. But we automatically think, oh, my God, it's a lion. And the reason we think that is historically through evolution, it only needed to be a lion once and we were wiped out the gene pool. And... That, for me, is why we have to be careful about commoditization. And in an area and a time where that is happening, I believe it is the biggest opportunity to differentiate yourself. So at sales kickoffs and meetings of new sales teams and things, I ask everybody two questions typically. The first one is, what's the best thing about sales? And the second is, what is value? But the first one is, is What's the best thing about sales? And people say commission and helping customers. And at the end, I give them my answer. My answer about the best thing about sales is mediocrity. Because there is so much mediocrity in the industry. And this is what kind of the average of AI kind of does to a degree. That's the best way to differentiate yourself. You know, my parents, when I was six or seven, never turned around to me and said, I really hope Dean's a salesperson. (laughs) <laughs> but I love what I do. It has such an impact on my customers, the world, the, you know, the organizations I work for and my life. It's a brilliant, brilliant um, 
it's a brilliant, brilliant facet of, of, of a career to take up, clearly, right? We're all here because we love it. But when you talk about sales, people think of the car sales person and the window sales person. It's always the mediocrity experience. So you only have to be a bit better. And it's like that now in sales. You know, the people that meet customers and understand them and build relationships and every piece of data that we see tells us this. We are the individual single biggest differentiator of what a customer values of our organization. 57% of a buying experience is relationship and engagement. Only 11% is product and price. That hasn't changed, and I don't think it will. So, you know, whilst we can look for and yes, there's ways we can, we can use it. We can research better. We can create um, scripts and, and get content. And there are many, many different things we can use AI for to make us more productive as a sales organization. But it will never replace this. Mm -hmm. And if it does, it's not a world I want to live in. Mediocrity, a refreshingly honest favorite part to the profession. I've never heard that before. Well, Dean, it is the most fitting segue to the last question of today's episode. And if you've listened to Reveal, this shouldn't come as an ambush because we ask every guest who comes on the same question. But we know that your favorite part of sales is mediocrity. The question is, Dean, if you could describe sales in just one word, what would it be? Value. You've got to sell something that enhances value to somebody. So how are their outcomes being solved better with what you are helping them with over the status quo today? Right, and that's measured as value. And, and the hard thing about that is value is customer-centric, so it's different from me and it is to you. We value different things, and, and that's why the relationship part is important because we could, be, we could both buy the same thing and both love it, but we could love different things about it. And so that willingness to dive into a customer and a customer being an individual, not an organization, because the individuals within it value differently and say, right, what's your, what's your status quo and how do I help you achieve outcomes and things that you've never been able to achieve before better than you can without me? And that could be the reduction of risk, the increase of revenue, the saving of time, the whatever it is. But it, for me, it's all about value. And I think it's an overused word in sales where people talk about value, but they really mean price, product, features. But, but value to a customer is really what we all sell. Amazing. Well, from the unforgettable takeaways of starting with what do Tiger and Roger Federer, what do they do? The endurance to just grind through the less than glamorous tasks at hand to this idea of the second mountain and as a leader, the obligation you feel to servitude, to the idea that the best part of this job is that there's a lot of mediocrity out there and closing with not our definition of value, but the customer's definition and experience of value and that being what is most crucial to the, the profession. I, I'm left feeling just completely satisfied, feeling very full after all of the authenticity, Dean, that you've shared on this episode. So from the deepest part of my heart, just thanks for being real and refreshingly original as someone who's achieved 
what is an amount of success that we could all only aspire to have. So Dean, thank you very much. Danny, it's been my pleasure. Thank you to you and the team. Keep, keep up the good work. They're great. Thank you. Well, listeners, that's Dean Curtis, the Chief Executive Officer of LexisNexis Risk Solutions and Data Services, part of the larger Relics team. We'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Reveal. If you want more resources on how revenue intelligence can help you create high-performance sales teams, then head on over to gong.io. And if you like what you heard, come on, give us that five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may listen.